Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedians never forget the first time they got in front of a bunch of people started working out their act. Colin Quinn, the stand-up and former Saturday Night Live star, has a great story. Starts off benign enough. He was in Times Square trying to get on stage at the Improv. He was drinking at the time. You know, one thing leads to another, and he gets arrested, and the cops throw him in the drunk tank. So I'm going, let me go. i got to do a comedy show. I'm a comedian. I'd never done comedy, but I had my little act. So they said, you're a comedian? Let's see your act. I get up in front of 30 guys I got locked up in Times Square, 15, 20 cops, whatever it was, like a lot of people. And I get up and start doing my jokes. And after two minutes, one of the cops goes, well, we were going to let you go because you said you were a comedian, but now we know you were lying. It's a bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Colin Quinn about his new show. It's called New York Story. The show is a sort of personal history of New York. He grew up in Park Slope in Brooklyn in the 70s. These days, he looks back on that childhood fondly. Back then, he kind of felt differently. At the time, I hated it so much. I just wanted to move to Long Island. I was like, Long Island, we go visit some cousin in Long Island. I go, this is the place to live, man. Long Island. I was the worst real estate speculator in history. Later on, I'll sit down with Padma Lakshmi. She's the host of TV's Top Chef. She's also the author of a new encyclopedia of spices and herbs. She'll tell me about the spices and the cooking she grew up with. And when you heard the crackling of the mustard seeds, um, something akin to like little machine gun fire or sort of like popcorn, uh, you knew, and you could also smell the aroma of the curry leaves frying. It's a very distinct smell. You knew that dinner was on in a mere amount of minutes. Plus, we'll hear some comedy from Sarah Schaefer, recorded at Max FunCon earlier this year. And I'll tell you about Red Oaks, one of the most charming new TV shows you might never have heard of. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. My first guest is Colin Quinn. He's a lifelong stand-up comedian, first and foremost. You might have also seen him on Saturday Night Live. He hosted Weekend Update on his Comedy Central show, Tough Crowd, or in movies, like most recently Amy Schumer's Trainwreck, where he played Schumer's father. He's also a lifelong New Yorker. His latest special is called New York Story. It's out now on Netflix. In it, Colin gives you a history of the city from the very beginning right up till today, with a lot of personal stuff mixed in for good measure. Here's a bit of it. And New York is New York. We're, we're, but it, everybody says we are. Rude, opinionated, pushy, loud, fast-talking, uh, sarcastic, wise-ass. But what people don't understand is we, what's rude to the rest of the country is polite to us and vice versa. Because <laughs> if I go to a pizza place and you're like, give me a slice, that's polite. Because <laughs> you're not trying to hold the line. There's a line, and you're not trying to slow... If you go into a pizza place like, hi, how are you? You must be hot working back there. That's rude. You know what I'm saying? There's no stools. They want you to walk and eat your food. You have to to fold your food and walk. Colin Quinn, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. And I'm sorry if that uh, politeness there wasted any of your time. Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
I don't mind. That wasn't too bad. But it's, like a lot of places, they'll go into it like a five minute. So, how was your trip up? And it's like, what? Are you kidding me? Do you, it is a little annoying. Do you believe that that New York personality is a uh, is a going concern? Is that a thing that still exists? No, I don't. I mean, I hear it, you know, occasionally. But the kind of the kind of the what uh, what they call a gruff familiarity, like a like the brusque, but it's still kind of a friendly brusqueness. That seems to be gone. I remember I I was born in, in 1981, and I went to New York wow. the first time when I was uh, like six or seven, something like that. And I, I don't really remember the trip very much, but my mom will tell me that I went to town, like got off the airplane, you know, we whatever went and took the subway to my mom's friend's house where we were staying. And I was so overwhelmed that I threw up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, where were you coming from? I was coming from San Francisco. I mean, I'm from the city. Oh, wow. I'm from the city. I don't, it's not like, it's not like I was coming from Iowa city or something like that. Right, right, right. But yeah, well, I'm, yeah, that's a proper reaction. <laughs> it was something. Um, your your show is kind of like building the the story of where that thing comes from. Is it something that you think about more since it is less part of your life? Well, now I don't think about it at all because I got out of my system with the show. But um, yeah, I was. Uh, it was good because you know it was interesting because I was thinking in terms of wanting to do a show just like a like a farewell to the personality of New York, you know, and then. Luckily, the structure with me and Big Jer, Jerry Seinfeld, well, came up with was just do the history of it, you know, do like the whole thing from the beginning of the. And then I looked into the fact from just Google that the Dutch invented the F bomb, that they invented. I knew they invented the word Brooklyn. I knew there were still Dutch words like Bedford Stuyvesant, obviously, and, you know, Spoit and Doyle. But the fact that the F bomb came out of, uh, you know, I don't know if you have to curse on it, that's what I'm saying, the F-bomb. Believe me, it's making me sick to say it, but um, <laughs> the fact that that, that that came from Holland was really a gift. Do you miss it? Not saying the F-bomb. You obviously miss that. Yeah, I miss I miss the person. I miss the interactions. There was a lot of fun in the interactions, and, you know, it's almost like um, those little store owners. They just seemed like they you could go in there and just be amused and have an hour of just chit-chat back and forth. And now everything's more or less, you know, people are, it's all business and it's just, you know, it's like, you ever see that, this is a great Sopranos episode where they go in and they try to extort like a Starbucks. And the guy goes, what? We can't. He goes, give us, who's the boss? He goes, the boss. He goes, I'll give you the number to call the corporate office, I guess, you know, like they don't know, like, like, so it's like a different thing. Like there's nobody, there's nobody in charge in the store, you know, it's like beyond anything. So, you know, that's like New York, it's all chain restaurants and stuff. Do you ever, do you ever question your fondness for it? I mean, like I grew up, I grew up in a pretty tough neighborhood in San Francisco. Right. That, that is now the one, like literally Mark Zuckerberg lives near where I grew up. <laughs> Literally, he bought... yeah, well, that's me. I'm from, I'm from Park Slope. It's the same thing. <laughs> but like, I I go I go home and it and I feel sad about. I mean, I feel really sad about it. Yes. But then I think, like, on the other hand, 
I remember being 10 years old and walking down the street and somebody trying to sell me a rock. And it's like, right. well, that was definitely bad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. guys. Ch- I remember a guy chasing me out like eight with a hypodermic needle, you know? Oh, yeah, we get people hold, put knives to your neck when you're like 12. It was, a, it was definitely not a – at the time, I hated it so much. I just wanted to move to Long Island. I was like, Long Island, we go visit some cousins in Long Island. I go, this is the place to live, man. Long Island. I was the worst real estate speculator in history. I want to play another clip from New York Story, uh, my guest Colin Quinn's new show. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of stories about New York in the show. Uh, you talk a, a lot about your own teenage years, which um, which were mostly in the in the seventies. I mean, people started to they started to accommodate criminals because you'd be like, like people told you bring twenty bucks with you. Why? What if I get jumped? Yeah, because the mugger started to know like, oh, people aren't going to bring money. We'll kill a few people. They started killing people for having no money. So you bring mugger money. That's what they call it. <laughs> and the muggers know about it too. They're like, give me your money. I left my wallet home. All right, you got your mug of money, though, right? Oh, yeah, of course I bought it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not... Yeah, people started writing notes to the car thieves. Like, they're writing no radio and putting it in the car. <laughs> like, I'm not saying, like, one day... I'm saying the whole city did for, like, 20 years. No radio. Who's that for? The car thief. I cars... <laughs> putting correspondence with the car thief. Could have their own stationery line. You would have made a lot of money. You know? And the car thieves would read it. They'd be like, uh, you know... Come on, man. It says no radio. Can't you read? Let's go. That's something that I, I, I can relate to. I didn't have, ever have a car in that time. But um, I remember in the early 1990s when I was, you know, a 10 or a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old, this idea that you had to have the right amount of money in your pocket, like enough money to satiate somebody that jumped you, but not, right. not so much money that you couldn't lose it. Yeah, that was like a common thing in New York. Like people would say, yeah, you got to, you know, women got to carry 20 bucks. And guys have to carry, you know, everybody had to carry money. And when I was a real little kid, you would carry like your bus pass in your underwear. And if you had money, it would go in your socks or vice versa. I mean, I loved it. But there, there are kind of skills. There are skills that you learn. And one of them is this kind of vigilance. It's like next door to fear. Like, it's driven by fear, but it's not purely fearful. It's about this constant awareness of how you are presenting yourself in, th- in the world and whether anybody, you know, whether anybody is a, is a half a step away from stepping to you. You know what I mean? That's, that's a, a good way of putting it. Exactly. It's a vigilance. And it is true. And to this day, if I get on the subway and I, like, you see all these people that move here now and they're talking, they get on the subway, they're looking at each other, chatting. I walk in the subway. I look at that car. I want to see who's in the car and what's going on before I start yapping away. You know what I mean? Like, because I remember the subways when it was a different subway. So it's so funny watching people get on. They're not even, they're like unaware of their surroundings. And I'm like, you're crazy, man, you know. But you you realize, or at least I find myself realizing, like, I think for maybe the first decade of my adulthood, after I, you know, grew up and went to college and all that stuff, I I saw those people's happiness as weakness. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> like I saw them as being like, I, oh yeah, that's just a mark. Like he's gonna get he's he's gonna get busted. You know, somebody's gonna take him. You but, exactly. Um. Yeah. But then I was then I I realized now you know I'm I'm a I'm an adult with children. Like yeah, maybe it's better to just be a happy person. 
Walk, yeah. When you're walking down the street, to just enjoy your surroundings and assume that other people have good intentions. Yes, but you'll never be able to. So it's all just uh, speculation on your part. You'll never <laughs> be able to be like that, and neither will I. In the back of your mind, you're like, the day I do is the day they get me, you know? I mean, I, I live in a doorman building, and I still see, I have, an, I have a giant Afghani hunting knife next to my bed. Yeah, I had a I had a knife next to my bed, and I thought, who who am I gonna who am I gonna stab with this knife? I'm not a never, I'm not a stabber. I'm not a stabber. Well, you never know. I used to have a hatchet when I was a kid. I once chased a car thief down the block in my underwear with a hatchet. <laughs> one, of my, one of my happiest memories. It was like, yeah, it was crazy. When uh, when I turned on New York Story, uh, your new show, Colin, I anticipated what it is billed as, which is a sort of history of New York. And it has a few elements of the history of New York. But uh, I would say 70% of the show is you deconstructing the characteristics of the various immigrant groups of New York City. You know, I think that um, I think that doing humor that's based around race, and that's what a lot of this show is. Yes, is a fraught thing uh, in 2016. Um, oh, do you think so? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're 100 percent right. Yes, of course it is. What's the way to joke about race that doesn't work, in your opinion, for um, whatever reason, for for funny reasons or for you right. know for moral reasons or whatever? They, uh, I think that the right way is whatever your intention is. You know what I mean? Like if your intention is, you know, to kind of just depersonalize or dismiss, or dismiss somebody, then I would say that's – it's like you know it when you see it. It's, it's hard to articulate. You know, it's not it's – not, it's, I can't really explain what, what the parameters are because there are no parameters. You know, it's comedy. It's, it's got to be whatever that person, that comedian thinks they should be saying. But if you're saying things – to try to be slick, let's put it this way. If you say, if I was doing this show to be like, hey, I'm going to get away with talking about black people, or I'm going to get away with talking about Puerto Rican, that would be something I personally would be like, that guy, you know, he's trying to be, he's trying to get over and, and be like, I'm edgy. You know what I mean? But I'm just trying to do what I think is funny and my life experience, and that's it, you know? Yeah, as, as I was watching the, the show, I, I thought about comics whose shtick is basically, hey, I'm an equal opportunity offender, right? That there are these <laughs> there are these comics who defend themselves by saying, yeah, sure, I said something terrible about Hispanic people, but I said something terrible about white people too. Right. And that's very tired to me. That does nothing for me. Um and right. I, and but you, while you are you are you know, you you do jokes about all these different groups, including your own group. I think that helps. But I think that uh, fundamentally, you know, you're, you're doing some, you know, as you said, some pretty broad jokes that uh, could be accused of being stereotypical. Sure. But there's a kind of decency to it. Like, it's not about none of the jokes are about putting people down. Um, none right. of the jokes are about talking about why you're better than these people. And right. that seems like it's kind of at the at the core of it. It's your it's your heart. I mean, that's such a horrible, awful thing for me to say because it's so corny. But it's your intention. But like I said, I feel even uncomfortable even saying setting boundaries because for comedy, it's like 
you know, there's so much focus on that person really, uh, I wonder where the, and a lot of times I'm like, oh, geez, you're, you're attacking this individual for that one joke in an act of a person that's written hours of material. It's getting a little, you know, ridiculous, obviously, in stand-up. It's like, hey, listen, you don't know how it is when you have a drunken crowd about to turn on you. Sometimes the wrong thing comes out. I'm, you know, Colin, I'm... <laughs> you know what I mean? I, absolutely. You know, like, I, I feel like I am, in in general, enthusiastically pro-political correctness in the sense that I really believe that at the at the heart of political correctness is being decent and being considerate of others. And I think that applies to comedians as well as it does anyone else. But there certainly is a part of comedy, and especially stand-up comedy. I think it's one of the things that puts a lot of stand-ups on the defensive about, you know, especially online reactions to to jokes, which is that you are, you're always kind of trying something. You know, and you're not always 100% certain that every joke is funny and you're not every, every uh, always 100% jerking, uh, certain that every joke is right. And part of the process of stand-up comedy is putting something out there and seeing if it works. And when I say seeing if it works, I mean seeing if it gets a laugh, but also seeing if it's the right thing, if it reflects what you really think and how you really feel. Here's what I think. I think that when it comes to when it comes to any of these, like, you know, the the fact that so many people are are uh, are trying to are trying to determine what stand-up comedy should should what it should be or what angle it comes from is just strange to me because the whole point is people should judge your work afterwards, but everyone's like everyone's trying to like control something like stand-up, and the whole point of stand-up comedy is to inflict abuse. It's this guy Jack Simmons. <laughs> is, this guy that, Jack Simmons is that so, Colin? Say, yes, this guy Jack Simmons used to go on stage. He goes, he'd make a joke about baby Jessica being in the well. This is a hundred years ago, and uh, you were two years old. And then he goes, and the crowd would moan. He goes, "Come on, folks, it's comedy. Somebody's got to get hurt." And it's like that's the truth. Comedy is never a positive. Nobody ever comes on stage and says, "You know what? I passed a construction site today." Yeah, the guys were a little rude to me as a woman, but you know what? God bless. They're working hard. It's like these bastards. That's what's funny is the negative side of things. Like where the, the lower nature, they always say about humor is the lower nature of people. So it's never going to be an, an enlightening kind of, you know what I mean? It's got to be, there has to be, for, for any human to have any bite, it's got to be what people, what people see that's all the hypocrisy of all sides. You know what I mean? So that means there's nobody off limits. And I understand about political correctness, but not in comedy. No, I, I don't think I don't think comedy should have any of these rules. I, I mean, I, I remember watching you on Saturday Night Live, and I was probably a fifteen-year-old kid. I hate to tell you, right? Um, and I hate to hear it. I, you know, <laughs> there are so, there are so many of the uh, so many of the talent on Saturday Night Live are these folks who came out of these sketch and improv comedy worlds, these worlds yeah. where the currency is, frankly, the, a significant part of the currency is, can you create enough characters that are memorable enough that it gets you on Saturday Night Live? Right. You have such a specific voice and such a stand-up's voice Yeah. that you stuck out like a sore thumb on the show. Was it? Because you were so awkward. Colin Quinney, you know what I mean? It was it was a little awkward, Jesse. I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes um, I was definitely very Colin Quinney, 
very Colin Quinney. I was more Colin Quinney then than I am now. So it was a bit of a <laughs> there was some there was some rough days, but I mean, you know, a lot of my time there I loved. You know, my 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 the first half I really loved, and then the second half got a little Colin Quinney. Yeah, sure, that's true. Uh, what what was the difference between the first and second? Um, well, before I was doing update, I was coming on Norm. When Norm was doing update, I was doing these characters like the lion and this Joe Blow character and just these little things like that and like these monologues. That was more my style. I wasn't really a, a punchline joke guy, you know. You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Colin Quinn after a break. He'll talk about how even though he's probably best known for hosting Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update, he kind of thinks he was bad at it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. National and local stories, many of which have nothing to do with the election, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make Thanksgiving, waiting in line, or waiting for a friend better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sony Pictures Classics with The Eagle Huntress, a documentary following Ashulpan, a 13-year-old girl who trains to become the first female in 12 generations of her Kazakh family to become an eagle hunter. It's a tradition that's only been handed down from father to son for centuries. The film features the most awe-inspiring cinematography ever captured in a documentary, portraying the tale of a young girl's determination. Now playing in select cities, coming soon to a theater near you. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Colin Quinn. His one-man show, New York Story, is on Netflix now. You probably also know Colin from his time on Saturday Night Live. Colin, I want to play a clip from your early days on SNL. And so in this clip, you're a guest on Weekend Update. You're giving Norm MacDonald, who at the time was the host of Update, a couple of alternatives to drinking on St. Patrick's Day. Why do people feel they have to go out and get drunk on this day? It's an insult to all the millions of Irish people that don't drink, the ones that are in AA. (laughs) Why can't you people do something that brings pride to the Irish? Like go see a play about a foreclosed farm in County Clare. Or go read a poem about some guy in Dublin that lost his hat. No, you'd rather spend your whole day bunking into people, kicking garbage cans over, singing cranberry songs, and wearing uncomfortable sweaters. Why don't you go to church, pray for the little war children of war-torn Belfast, or go bring soup to a one-eyed usher from the Holy Name Society? Now, I know what you'll do. You go to the bars I once went to, you'll punch your best friend in the face, and get thrown out out by three off-duty firemen right into the street. Then you'll go through the Irish rite of manhood just to walk 80 blocks home drunk because you have no money and your friends cut out on you. There's a there's a joke in there that that I love so much because it's it's when you say a poem about a guy in Dublin who lost his hat. It's such a specific joke. It gets very little laughter. Very little. I heard zero. Despite an emphatic delivery. Yes. Yep. I've never liked for, I've never liked for confidence. That's one good thing. But I mean, I I am I imagine that in the corridors of Saturday Night Live, 
whether or not you are a guy who was on the main stage at the Groundlings before he got cast on the show, right? A joke like that is the currency that you know that gets you friends. Like the fact that you can write. There's a joke in. There's a joke in your new show. You're talking about how the black guys in your school always had like really specific put downs. <laughs> like they they could find any tiny flaw in you to take you apart. Right. And right. one of them is you work in the back of a hardware store and you always come here smelling like cut keys. <laughs> Smell yes, like cut different. keys and a guy who lost his hat in Dublin are, are of a piece, I think. <laughs> a longer piece called Specifics. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the kind of humor a lot of uh, a lot of us love is the specific of, uh, you know, it's, it's really a comedian's thing that we all that we love when pe- I love like when you bring that up, because that's the stuff we love is. The little reference like that, you know. There was something very interesting when you became the anchor of Weekend Update, which was that I think for decades that segment of Saturday Night Live had been moving away from what it had started as, which was a news parody. You know, it was, you know, partly it was about delivering jokes, but it was about delivering jokes in a news voice. Um, and the joke was as much about the format as it was about current events. You know, these days, these days it's a long list of jokes about current events, which is great. I mean, they're great jokes and they do a great job. Um, but you were in a, you were the first guy I think who was completely a hundred percent unconvincing as the anchor of a news show. I mean, I think even Norm Macdonald, who you replaced, who was you know, was being Norm MacDonald, which is a deconstruction of everything that he says at all times. That's correct. Um, even he was a more credible news host than you were. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, I, I mean, I know that, that, that what you're saying is true. Thank God I didn't know it at the time, but it is the truth. Yeah. Did you really not know it at the time? No, I did not. If I thought that, I wouldn't have been able to go on. I just said, ah, I can do this. I'm a stand-up comic. I know how to do this stuff. <laughs> <You know? laughs> How did you do the first time you did stand up? I did pretty good. I did all right. I did it. Um, I did it. You know, it was one of those open mic things. And I, I got on stage, and then I was like, I got my first laugh, and I was like, I got this like vision, like, wow, this is what I'm supposed to be doing for a living. My first first time, I'd gotten a my first time it was a famous story I've told, but where I got arrested in Times Square, drunk, and I was trying to get a spot at the Improv, and you know. Things came, gotten out of control. So they arrest me. They put me in the bull. It's like 40 kids. They swept Times Square. This is like the 80s. So they sweep Times Square every Sunday so people go to a play. Because Times Square was a, was a violent hellhole, right? So they sweep it. I'm still locked up with 40 guys, 40, 20 cops. We're in that little Times Square substation that's still there on Times Square, right in the middle, of, right next to the recruiting uh, booth. You know, they have a little Times Square police station. So I'm going, let me go. I got to do a comedy show. I'm a comedian. I'd never done comedy. But I had my little act. So they said, you're a comedian? Let's see your act. I get up in front of 30 guys that got locked up in Times Square, 15, 20 cops, whatever it was, like a lot of people. And I get up and start doing my jokes. And after two minutes, one of the cops goes, well, we were going to let you go because you said you were a comedian. But now we know you were lying. <laughs> but I feel like, um, I feel like the, the part of the, that story that stood out to me 
yeah. was the part where you basically said, "Well, I was trying to get a set at the what was it, the Improv?" Improv. Yeah. yeah so you said, "I'm trying to get I'm trying to get a set at the Improv," and you know, one thing leads to another, and I get arrested for drunkenness in Times Square, <laughs> right. like as though right. that's the most natural A to B. At that time, it was the most natural A to B. Believe me. There were so many days where I had one intention, and it ended up with quite the opposite. Was it? And that was. Was it because of drinking? Always. Oh, totally, totally, drinking and drugs, and um, yeah. But that was the one. Thank God I remember that one, because luckily they caught me early enough in the day where I wasn't in a blackout. I wouldn't even be telling that story. How old were you? Mm, twenty-three, probably twenty-three, maybe twenty, twenty-three or twenty-four. You got sober eventually, right? Right after that, yeah, a little while after that, before I really did comedy. How how did that happen? I just I don't know. I just I just got I kept things kept going from worse to worse, and and I just was like I got to do something about this. You know what I mean? I just it was just I woke up one day. I had like three like desk appearance tickets to go to. I just had this whole bureaucratic mess, and I was like I couldn't handle bureaucracy anyway. And I was like this is not going to work. This is bad. And I looked in the mirror. And I looked like I saw myself as one of these, which you know from the Mission District, all those SROs, like single-room occupancy guys. Yeah. You know, all those guys that live in those. And I looked in the mirror. I was only about 23 or 24. And I looked in the mirror, and I said, I, I, I could see those guys because I was unshaven, and I looked like one of those SRO guys. And I saw it for the first time. It was almost like a, a like one of those movies where the guy's age is 20 years, and you see what he's going to be like. And that's what I saw. And that, that really got me, you know? I mean, it, when you're a stand-up comic, and I'm I'm not a stand-up comic, but um, you know, I I performed on a stand-up stage before. There's this feeling like when you get a certain amount of skill. I've heard people describe this to me. There's ways to avoid bombing. Like you can do well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing a good job. Right. But it must yeah. take it must take a lot of guts to say, I could just do well, get that high that comes from people laughing at my jokes, which is incredible. Sure. Or I could try and do something where it might really not work. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's how it goes. I mean, the whole point of stand-up is that failure has to be in the room at all times anyway. People are laughing because of that tension. Lorne Michaels actually told me this, even though he never did stand-up. And I was like, that's true. Because I go, oh, I got to go do this gig. But you know, I feel like I might bomb. He goes, well, that's part of the whole tension release of laughter is that people are waiting for the bomb. And I go, that's true. Most comedians like to take that chance and bomb sometimes because if you're playing it safe and you just, you're never going to grow. You know, you're not going to grow as a stand-up. More than any of the other quote-unquote art we're the ones that need to be in connection with the audience at all times. Like, they have to be there for us to work out our stuff, which they may not like when they pay a big cover charge. But come on, folks. Sometimes you got to see how the, how the cow gets slaughtered. You don't get the steak. That's the way it goes. Well, Colin Quinn, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Uh, thanks a lot, Jesse. I appreciate it, man. Colin Quinn. You can check out his new special, New York Story. It's available now on Netflix. It's Bullseye. I'm going to be talking with Padma Lakshmi from Top Chef in just a minute. But first, have you heard about Pop Rocket? It's our sister show. Pop Rocket is a roundtable discussion of everything great 
in popular culture. It's hosted by the brilliant comedian Guy Branham. Hey, Guy. What's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. Well, this week we are talking about monsters. Monsters from swamps, monsters from the crypts of Egypt, and monsters from your own backyard. Monsters you can see and monsters you can't see, and the scariest monsters of all, the monsters that live within us. Pop Rocket. Find it in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Padma Lakshmi is an author, model, actress, and the host of TV's Top Chef. She was born in Chennai in India. She grew up traveling back and forth between her hometown and New York City. She's written several cookbooks, a memoir, and now an encyclopedia of spices and herbs. Literally, that's what her latest book is called. It is, as the cover says, an essential guide to the flavors of the world. Padma, your new book is about spices. Um, what are the spices that you remember most vividly from, from being a kid? Probably black mustard seeds, cumin, curry leaves, um, red chilies. Those were the basic ingredients that my grandmother fried in a big iron ladle with some oil, usually mustard oil or sesame oil. And when you heard the crackling of the mustard seeds, um, something akin to like little machine gun fire or sort of like popcorn, uh, you knew. And you could also smell the aroma of the curry leaves frying. It's a very distinct smell. You knew that dinner was on in a mere amount of minutes. And I think from a very early age, I sort of stood at the um, at her elbow and... Um, was fascinated by these little seeds and twigs. Did you like the food that your grandma made when you were a kid? You came to the United States as a, I think, like as a preschool when you were four or five, right? Yes, exactly. I came when I was four. Yes, I did. I mean, I was always a good eater, and I was a very curious eater, and I really loved um, things that were heavily spiced, especially when you considered my age. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of a, cultural crossing, you know, to get used to American food. When I got to the States, everything seemed very bland to me. I think um, a lot of waiters in New York restaurants were charmed to have a four-year-old ask for Tabasco. (laughs) They thought I was kidding, but my mother said, no, she would really like some Tabasco, please. Did you have cultural crossing issues uh, the other way around? I know a lot of folks who uh, uh, grew up eating uh, the food of their immigrant parents at home uh, who were also, like, uncomfortable bringing friends from school home or whatever because they were worried that their friend from school would think it was weird. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I had cross-cultural clashes left and right, you know, going east and going west. Um In school, I can remember my mother used to send little Tupperware uh, plastic containers with rice and some vegetable curry or kidney beans and a tomato stew. And, you know, it's very pungent, to put it mildly. And everyone else was having these very neat little Wonder Bread sandwiches of peanut butter and jelly, which to me seemed disgusting to eat something that cloyingly sweet that stuck to every (laughs) surface in your mouth when... When I had birthday parties, I was always a little 
weary, uh, wary, excuse me, of what my mother was going to cook, you know, and I just said, can't we just have pizza, please? What was weird about you and especially the maybe the food that you ate and, uh, you know, your food, uh, food lifestyle, so to speak, when you were spending summers in India? Well, I always had a mental list of things that I was going to eat as soon as the plane landed. And, um, you know, I had a lot of street food. I had have always had Touchwood, a very good, strong stomach. And um, I, I had, you know, these things called chaat, C-H-A-A-T, chaat. And they come in various varieties, but they're all crunchy and salty and tangy and sweet and hot and sour. And no two bites are the same. So you can have puffed rice tossed with fried besan flour um, and fried peanuts that has, you know, a date and tamarind sauce, but also a spicy green chili and coriander chutney and yogurt and black cumin and red chili powder and all of these things put together. Or you can have flat disks of fried um, semolina um, with beets and flour again, and you know, boiled potatoes and boiled chickpeas, and there were just different configurations of of all these elements that had a lot of different textures and flavors. Uh, what was like weird and American about you when you were in Chennai or uh, Madras, uh, where your family was from, in the summer? My sense of dress. Because I went to America when I was four, and, you know, when you're four, you're really not even aware of your gender so much. Um, I wasn't taught, like the other kids were, to be bashful, to be um, reserved and covering of our skin. And so when I would go back for summers, I, you know, so hot in South India that I would just wear shorts and a little tube top. I want to ask you, uh, we've talked a lot about the uh, breadth of your palate. But I want to know what is gross to you to eat. Offal, tripe, anything. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big organ meat person. I don't like eating um, tongue or you know heart or brain and things like that. I still get really, really squeamish about um, certain cuts of meat. I you know obviously came to eating meat much later. It wasn't something I started doing until my adolescence, really, and it just. I have real trouble with with those kind of cuts of meat. Like it's the smell, it's the texture, it's the gamey bloodiness of it. Part of a big part of eating meat is pretending that that it's uh, not a part of a living being. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. Though that's how uh, I started eating I, meat. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't. I can't. I, I don't. I'm not trying to look at the at exactly the part of the animal that I'm eating right then. Um, like I want a little bit of distance. <laughs> you uh, want it shredded. I'll, you want the shredded tongue. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll eat it. I'll eat a lengua taco, easy peasy. <laughs> uh, but if it looks like if it looks like that thing, and I think you know, with tripe, you know, I I don't know. I guess I probably only ever had it much in in pho, mm -hmm. but. It's so it's so goofy looking that it hardly seems like it could be part of the body of an animal. <laughs> so I think that's yeah, why no. I'm cool with eating it. I know, but don't you taste? Isn't there that aftertaste? Can you not detect that it's tongue when you're eating a tongue taco, even if it's chopped up? No, I'm pretty chill. I'm pretty chill with tongue. I mean, there's definitely <laughs> a big difference between 
There's, it's one of those things where there's a big difference between uh, if it's pretty good or if it's not that good. Right. It's sort of like um, yucca. Like yucca is – if you get like stringy, weird yucca, it's super gross. Mm-hmm. But then if you get it really good, it's like, oh, this is totally better than potatoes. Right. Um, yeah, that's But it how, doesn't that's have this sinister it. quality to it. It's still just a- – <laughs> A tuber. It's, you know, it comes from the ground. <laughs> it's true. a plant. It's not, like, as bad as any vegetable. Like, think, you know, people have an aversion to eggplant or okra because, you know, it's not cooked properly and gets very slimy. But, you know, it's still just a plant. Like, it's so innocuous. But when there's something slimy and um, nondescript or murky, when it's a non-vegetarian thing, I think it just takes on a whole nother sinister thing for me. I like that you think of it as sinister specifically. I do. I feel like not very... just gross, like threatening. I do. I feel, but that's how you know I was conditioned to feel like that. I think. I mean, I remember when I came to this country, my grandfather, who loved America, was an you know American lover of all American culture, from baseball to jazz to show tunes to everything, and he made me memorize all fifty states and their capitals in alphabetical order, which is something I know I can't do now even. But, you know, he also said, be careful because meat lurks everywhere, even when you're not suspecting it. And it will be cold there and you'll order tomato soup or vegetable soup. And sure, it may have a few vegetables in it, but the broth is actually, you know, the boiled bone water of an animal. And so anywhere that you look, meat can be lurking. Like French fries, you love French fries or donuts, but they could be fried in um, liquefied fat of a pig. They call it lard, you know? (laughs) Right. So, you know, I felt like I was coming to another planet. Um, The most dangerous things in my grandmother's kitchen, you know, was her coconut grater and the chilies. (laughs) That's, you know... (laughs) How do you deal with eating like uh, the sort of cavalcade of foods that is required for your job on Top Chef, especially when there are a bunch of things that you have to eat? And, you know, while you're eating them, you also have to be uh, lending a hand in, in telling a story. So, like, you can't. You can't make a face. <laughs> you have to make a very specific kind of face yes. and that kind of thing. It's very funny because I have no poker face. So, um, you know, once I take a bite, the camera will usually cut away from me. Um, but I, it's hard. You know, it's really hard because it's not like just overeating. It's not like having a fourth portion of lasagna or a third portion of, you know, pulled pork tacos or whatever the heavy dishes. It's having... All of those things. It's having a little bite of this and a little bite of that. And each dish has, you know, 12 or 15 ingredients in it and components on the side. It, it's, I mean, I don't have a poker face. I think, you know, sometimes I'm really trying to figure out what the chef's intention is. You know, what were they going for? Um, because if they were going for something that was kind of bitter, then okay, they succeeded. Um, whether it's pleasurable to me or not, if that is the best example of what they were trying to do, then you have to give them points. Like if they make a great 
tongue salad, you know, and I don't happen to like tongue. I can't, I can't take points away from them. I'll finish my conversation with Padma Lakshmi after a break. She'll tell me the one spice I need to have in my cupboard that I don't have already. Can you guess what it is? It's not Old Bay. This is Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. There's a new show at NPR, and it's a little different from what we've done before. It's called Radio Ambulante, and it's in Spanish. Our first ever podcast in Spanish, in fact. The show takes a look at Latin America and U.S. Latino communities, bringing you stories that you might not otherwise hear. Punk rock in Cuba, stolen books in Colombia, junk bonds in Puerto Rico. Hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón, Radio Ambulante takes Latin American stories from the inside. Check it out on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Concord Bicycle Music with R.E.M.'s 25th anniversary deluxe edition of their album Out of Time. The newly remastered album features 19 never-before-heard demos, including a previously unreleased 1991 live show, eight music videos, and more. Now available at Amazon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Padma Lakshmi. She's been the host of TV's Top Chef for 10 years now. Her latest book, The Encyclopedia of Spices and Herbs, is out now. You were a model for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, obviously a big part of uh, being a model is, uh, you know, whatever, a gift, you know, being Heredity, very yeah. looking. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, I will stipulate you are. Thank you. Um, but I think the other uh, the other part of being a model and one of the skills of being a model is being aware of how you look. Um, you know, gift and a curse, obviously. Yeah. But part of it is you know, you are reflecting, you are able to produce whatever this image is supposed to look like in your face and body and so on and so forth. Um, And I don't think there is any time except maybe like in the middle of laughing uh, that we look weirder than when we are eating. Yeah. And I wonder if you, (laughs) I wonder if you had to develop like the skills to eat in a way that wasn't weird or embarrassing looking on camera. I'm yeah. I mean, I'm a. I talk with my mouth full all the time. Um, we, you know, it's funny that you say that because sometimes I go online, which is not a good practice usually, but and read some of the comments. You know, I think GQ did a piece on me recently, and they posted on their social media, and I went to see, read the comments there, and one of the guys said, "Oh, you know, she's so heinous. She she's terrible the way she eats." And I actually like answered him on. Their, on their Instagram and said, I'm sorry, I'll try and do better next time. Um, but, you know, it's it's difficult. I, I try not to be too messy, but, um, you know, and I try not to spill because obviously we're, you know, we're a small cable food show. And so we don't have two of everything. So if I soil my blouse, it's going to remain soiled. I mean, we'll stop production and try to get the stain out, but if we can't get it out, it's not like we can't, you know, we're going to change the top. We're just going to note it and move on. There are not a lot of books uh, that are written by stores 
But your book, The Encyclopedia of Spices and Herbs, uh, has two co-credits underneath Padma Lakshmi in the titles. One is a writer with whom you worked on uh, the book. One is a store. Um, tell me about that third writing credit on the book. Sure. Calustians is an institution in New York City for generations and generations of immigrants. Uh, it opened in the 40s, and it was um, originally an Armenian dried fruit and nut store. There were two Orthodox churches right near that area, um, just above Gramercy Park, sort of between Gramercy Park and Murray Hill in the late 20s, early 30s on Lexington Avenue. And then it changed hands, and it, the store changed with the neighborhood as it changed. And so Indians would start to go there because they would carry some Turkish spices, not just Armenian ingredients, and it kind of spread from there. And now the whole area is called Curry Hill instead of Murray Hill because there are all these Indian grocery stores and little food joints. And in the 70s, my mother... And I lived on the Upper East Side because she was a nurse at Sloan Kettering Hospital. And we would go to Calustians. In those days, it was really hard to get cilantro anywhere. And if you knew the guy really well, they would sort of take you in the back. And under a moist burlap sack, they would sort of show you the stash. Like they were selling you a dime bag of cilantro. And he would save it for his best customers and and. And and so, you know, it, it, it now has anything, any spice from any part of the world you could ever imagine. If you were going to give me a casual home cook who primarily is cooking pork shoulders um, and green beans with butter, um, a, a spice, a single spice, what would it be? And I'm not talking about salt or pepper. Something that something that probably isn't in my spice rack right now, or that I might not think of the way that you would have me think of it. If it's not salt and pepper, I would say probably sumac, or perhaps za'atar. Um, sumac is in za'atar, but za'atar is um, a Middle Eastern spice blend. It has thyme, wild thyme in it. It also has sesame seeds. Um, it's a lovely, you, you'll see it often rubbed on Middle Eastern flatbreads. Sumac is uh, a dried red berry. It used to grow in North America. It grows all over the Middle East. If, it's, if you eat you know, a bushel of it, it's poisonous, but you wouldn't. Um, but when it's dried and powdered, it has this beautiful, rich vermilion color, this lovely, lovely burgundy red that you can just sprinkle on things. And it gives a fruity tartness that has a depth to it that is beautiful. When we add acidity or sourness to a dish, usually we add it with citrus, like lemon or lime, or with vinegars. This allows you to add sour notes to a dish without adding moisture. And it you know, doesn't seem like a big deal until you talk about uh, different things that you want to season, um, like, like your pork shoulder. You know, it would be beautiful as a spice rub on your, on your pork shoulder. I would love to be able to credibly use the phrase rich vermilion. <laughs> I'm a public radio host. That should be like one of my – that should be in my rack of skills, but <laughs> I, I just haven't got it. <laughs> 
I need to I need to ask you about something that um, I feel like my show is the one public radio show that will take the time to ask you about. Um, you uh, were an actress before you were a television host um, and writer, and you're in the movie Glitter. Oh God, yeah, I was. Yeah, uh, you play uh, you play a disco diva mm-hmm. who uh, who is not a strong singer. No, to put it mildly. Um, let's let's play a little bit. This is, of course, the the classic Mariah Carey vehicle. Let's play a, a little bit of that. This is not a classically good movie. No. Um, uh, How does it feel? But it is a movie that many people I know treasure very deeply. I know. Um, (laughs) What's it like to have that acting credit on your resume? And and how do you feel about having been in... You know, one of the great camp classics of the last 25 years or so. <laughs> At the time, you know, when you're making a movie, there's so many people involved. It's a big circus that comes together, and then there's all this stuff in post-production. So you have no idea whether you're making Citizen Kane or or Glitter. And it just, you know, I think, I don't know what to say about it, really. <laughs> I really don't. You you suffer from endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Um, which is uh, a condition that I'll give a very quick summary and you'll tell me if I'm wrong uh, Mm -hmm. because I went to public high school. But um, uh, it's essentially, you know, the the process of of a woman's reproductive period involves shedding the lining of the uterus. Right. And if you have endometriosis, that lining does not shed properly or, or as it does in other people. And it causes very serious cramping and pain, um, you know, for a, a kind of a regular period of every month mm-hmm. and also other related pain. Mm-hmm. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. It's very uh, debilitating. I mean, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 36. And, you know, I went through puberty when I was 13. So that's a week every month for 23 years, you know, 25% of my life that I was in chronic pain. And when I say chronic pain, I mean taking prescription painkillers in bed with a heating pad or hot water bottle, feeling nauseous, having a headache, feeling numbness, pain running down one leg, having backache, having digestive problems. And, you know, I think when we get that talk about the birds and the bees from our elders, we're conditioned to accept that pain because anything to do with a woman's reproductive system, childbirth, all of it, is our lot in life and is painful. Do you feel like talking about it has, and being so public about it, has changed the way that you relate to the world, not just about this, but about other things? I think, yes. I think the only good that could come out of being undiagnosed for those many years is that it galvanized something inside of me and made me want to do something about it because 
you know, I didn't want the next generation of women to, to lose 25% of their life and to not be able to play volleyball or go on the debate team or, or whatever they wanted to do. And that was the first step, speaking out about it. You know, it wasn't overnight. It took some cajoling and sort of getting used to, but it was very liberating to speak about it. And then once I spoke about that, it gave me courage to to write my memoir. And, you know, that was a very scary thing to do as well. But I have to tell you, it's 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 quite astonishing how... You know, I'm 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 pretty much Indian. I'm very Americanized because I've grown up in this country. But inside, I'm still affected by um, my Indian culture. And in Indian culture, like in many Asian cultures, you're taught to be reserved. You know, to be very reserved and not to speak too much about your personal life and um, all of that. And and you know, what I've done is just do the complete opposite. And it feels so good because I'm not, I don't, I'm not a scaredy cat anymore. You know, all those things that I was embarrassed about or ashamed of or didn't feel I had worked out. You know, there's nothing anyone can say about me now that I haven't said about myself. Well, Padma, um, I so appreciate you taking all this time to come talk to me on Bullseye. Um, thank you so much for doing it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a great talk. I guess it's time for me to pack my knives and go. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Padma. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for having me on. It's Bullseye. Every year, MaximumFun.org, my company, puts on MaxFunCon. It's a gathering of creative people from all over the country for three days of comedy, education, and friendship. Next year, we're going to be doing two Max Fun Cons, one in Lake Arrowhead, California in June, the other Max Fun Con East in Pocono Manor in the Poconos in Pennsylvania in September. What's Max Fun Con like? Well, one part of Max Fun Con is great stand-up comics, like Sarah Schaefer, who headlined last year. Here's a little bit from her performance. I travel a lot for my job, and I love it. And I don't want to sound braggy right now, but uh, I am a very chill traveler. (laughs) TSA, no problem. Long lines, fine. Delayed flight, sure. Baby on the plane, cute. (laughs) I'm very zen when I travel. I'm better than all of you. (laughs) For instance, I was on a flight recently, and the man sitting next to me was scrolling through Twitter. Well, after it was time. You know what time I'm talking about. Airplane mode. Flight attendant came by and she was like, Sir, it's time to put it in airplane mode. And then he turned to me and was like, (laughs) Okay, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Like, if I don't put it in airplane mode, like, that's really going to bring the plane down. And I was just like, Yes, I will! Put it in there! I'm playing that now! Mm. What I'm trying to say is, I'm a joy to travel with. And any first-time flyers in here tonight, I'm happy to accompany you on your first flight. Just to keep you calm, I'll sit on your lap. I'll be, I'll be your comfort animal. Do you all know what comfort animals are? 
uh, I think some people get comfort animals. Uh, they're animals that people bring on flights and stuff to keep them calm and stuff. And um, totally all for a calm flight. Totally love that. But I think some people get them confused with service animals. Um, and service animals, um, to become a certified service animal, um, you have to go through rigorous, so you, the animal, have to go through rigorous, <laughs> rigorous training for years against your will. Uh, and then you serve humans in the most heroic way possible, and uh, you're an amazing animal. I love you, service animal. But this is how you become a comfort animal. Your owner logs onto the internet, fills out a form, and pushes print. You are now a comfort animal. I'm sure there's a lot of legit cases of comfort animals. But that process is how we get headlines like, Woman brings comfort owl on jet blue flight. <laughs> Excuse me? A comfort owl. And again, I'm not trying to be judgy, but how the f*** did you figure out you needed an owl to stay calm? Like, were you walking in the forest, like, just having massive anxiety about what you said on that conference crawl two months ago? And then, like, a owl flew down, and I'm like, hoo, hoo. And you were like, hoo, hoo. Look who's here. I feel better. Don't try to tell me you need an owl on the flight to stay calm. Don't don't f around. You just brought it on because it's a business transaction of some kind. You've got to take an owl to a guy. Like that's what that's what you're doing. Um, when I get depressed, I don't cry. I like to push the tears down, I shove them down, I keep them in, and I let them build and build and build until I'm about to blow. And then I step into an art museum. And I just let it rip. <laughs> because I like to make the other people in the museum think that I just get the art more than they do. Because <laughs> if I'm going to suffer, I might as well feel culturally superior and highly sophisticated while doing so. I, uh, some people say they're, they're unlucky in love. And I'm sorry for those people, but I'm lucky in love. You know? I like, I can keep a man. I can keep a man. I can hold him down for over a decade. <laughs> I've been in a long-term, only two long-term relationships my entire adult life with only one year of being single. Check out those stats. I <laughs> On the other hand, I am unlucky in friend. I'm, I'm very unlucky in friend. All I've ever wanted my whole life is a BFF. Who here has a BFF? <laughs> Shut the f*** up. <laughs> I tried to split one of those best friend necklaces with somebody growing up, but it didn't f***ing work. I couldn't even get in on a three-way best friend necklace. There's only a few of you old enough to understand that, <laughs> that Claire's Boutique reference. <laughs> I think part of the problem is that I just don't understand what a best friend is. I probably have like four, but I'm like, it's not close enough. <laughs> you don't live in my apartment with me. <laughs> I think one of the problems is when I get, when I start getting a best friend, something always goes wrong and then we have to break up and that's a 
nightmare. I don't know if there are any people here have had to break up with a girlfriend before. And I don't mean romantically, but like break up with a friend before. We're not allowed to just dump a friend. Like that's not allowed. You're not allowed to ghost a friend. You're like it's with friend with a girlfriend. It's like the slow back away for twenty years. Just like, <laughs> do you want to go to brunch? Okay. You, like see her walking down the street. You roll into a ditch. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. I'm Sarah Schaefer. That was Sarah Schaefer at Max FunCon last year. Tickets for Max FunCon and Max FunCon East 2017 go on sale. Friday, November 25th. They're sure to sell out. You can find more information at maxfuncon.com. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. You know, charm goes a long way on TV. There are 10-minute montages on YouTube dedicated completely to David Caruso from CSI Miami. I swear this is real. Why? Because he's a charming man. Charm is the greatest strength of a great show that you might not have heard of. Red Oaks on Amazon. Welcome to Red Oaks. Come on down and play around. We're here to serve you. We're shaking things up. Fine wine. Great spirits. Come on by. It's a snap. We'll make you look good. Lap it up in our sparkling pool. I love it here. And I'm not just a member. I'm also the president. Our tennis program is a real hit. Red Oaks. Everyone's talking about Red Oaks. Red Oaks. You might say that we're making quite the racket. Red Oaks. Come join the club. Hole in one. Come on down to Red Oaks. Red Oaks is about a guy named David. He goes to NYU. In the summer, he works as a tennis instructor at a country club back home in the suburbs. The setup of the show is basically 80s sex comedy. It's actually set in the 80s, for one thing. And it also has just a hint of the haze of a VHS rental. David, the lead, is great. He's innocent without being dopey. But it's the world around the lead that's most wonderful. Every corner of the country club is packed with great performances. There's this creepy slickster with a mustache trying to steal David's girl. There's a stoner best friend, and you have to figure that the audition breakdown that they handed out when they were trying people out for this part said Seth Rogen type. But honestly, it is pulled off with such sweetness and elan that he does pretty good by the comparison. The biggest breakout is a guy named Ennis Esmer, who plays the tennis pro at the club. David's boss. He's sort of like a trickster father figure. He's a little round in his polo shirt. And he basically lives to hit on the rich wives that he trains. And also, he basically, maybe, lives in the pro shop sometimes. Esmer's is a big performance, but it's not broad. It's specific. Lands every time. Yeah, drink this. <coughs> what is this? Head of the dog. Absolute and Gatorade. <sighs> Can't do it, man. Hurting so bad, I can't do it. David, you are going to do it. Why, Nash? Why do you care? Don't. Look, I'm building up to something. Don't betray my motivational speech. Okay. Suppose you remind me of myself when I was your age. I mean, you're more of a white person. Clearly less well endowed from what I can see through those delicate shorts. But gifted. Lot of heart. Lot of hustle. Also, none of the other applicants I interviewed would agree to the 
the split you accepted on the hourly rate. Sixty-forty? Oh, Jesus, what a schmuck. Oy. Now go get him, Tiger. Two other fathers sort of anchor the show. One is literal, David's actual dad, played by Richard Kind. Kind is masterfully, I guess, kindly, kindish. He's big and powerful, kind of broken down to sad and vulnerable. It's a brilliant performance. The other father is the head of the country club, Paul Reiser. He uses all his brains and confidence, he really is a wonderful actor, to be genuinely beguiling and a little bit scary. He sort of reflects the more ambitious real world that David aspires to join. See the guy over there, white hair? It's Chip Patrick. Made a fortune in tax liens. You know what tax liens are? No. Neither do I. But whatever they are, they bought the helicopter he rides to work. See that guy over there? The red-haired, dopey grin? Mm -hmm. Joe Farrell. Feldspar Capital? They do business loans, some retail. What do you think he drives? Cadillac. Lamborghini. Base price, $100,000. I'm guessing that's more than your parents' house is worth. Uh, Actually, my parents had to sell their house. Did they get $100,000 for it? Not quite. Well, think about that. This guy's riding around in your parents' house. Look, when it comes to prestige TV, Red Oaks is no transparent. It's nobody's idea of a revolution. The female characters aren't quite as full as the guys. It's not perfect, but Red Oaks is what it is. Raunchy, funny, good-hearted. Basically, Red Oaks wants to make a simple pleasure simply pleasurable. It's a really nice place to spend half an hour. That's my option. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producers are Kevin Ferguson and Christian Duenas. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Thanks, Dan. Our theme music given to us by the Go Team and Light in the Attic Records. Thanks to them for letting us use that. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or open up your favorite podcasting program. And if you want to hear about cool culture stuff between now and the next time Bullseye airs, find us on Facebook, click like. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Garrett, please pack your knives and go. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 